Good morning. Thank you for joining us, friends. It is great to have you for our service online today. We are continuing in our series that we call One Story. We're looking at the unity of the Bible, all 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. Uh, some Christians think we can kind of dismiss the Old Testament since Jesus has come and we're living in the light of the New Testament. But all parts of the Bible, all 66 books are still important for us as Christians. And so in this series that we've called One Story, we're looking at why each part is necessary and important to the furthering of God's One Story plan. Today we come to the incredible Old Testament book of Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah uh, has a name that is sometimes referred to as a God-bearing name. And I think that is particularly important in his case in light of the content of the book attached to his name. The name Isaiah means Yahweh saves. Now, Yahweh is the divine name. It's the name that God gave for himself. When Moses was standing before God at the burning bush, he asked God his name, and he answered. He said, I am that I am, Yahweh, from the Hebrew verb to be. It's sometimes rendered as Jehovah, and in our Bibles, it's most frequently spelled L-O-R-D with all caps. So, uh, Yahweh, the name, is attached to the name of Isaiah. The A-H on the end of the name Isaiah is a reference to uh, Yahweh, uh, a God-bearing name, it's, as it's sometimes called. Other prophets have God-bearing names. For example, a Jeremiah, the A-H on the end is a reference to Yahweh. It uh, means Yahweh lifts up. Micah, with the A-H on the end, who is like Yahweh. But Isaiah's is particularly significant. Yahweh saves. And I, I stress this because of the importance of understanding the message of salvation that is present in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah wrote about 740 years before the birth of Christ. He wrote and prophesied his ministry began then. But he continued as a prophet throughout the reigns of four different kings. And he began prophesying when Judah had experienced a long period of prosperity. Now, this is significant because the people were given over to uh, idolatry, uh, the abuse of uh, orphans and widows, if you noted that in the reading. Prosperity brings its own challenges, and prosperity oftentimes makes it easier to forget God. It's been observed by many people over the years that there's often a much greater openness to the Lord, his ways, his truth, his commandments among the poor. And uh, certainly God brings blessings of prosperity, but we must always be alert to its dangers. And it appears that uh, God's people in, in the midst of great prosperity had turned away from him. So Isaiah, whose name means Yahweh saves, arises during this time. The book of Isaiah swings back and forth between these oracles, these uh, proclamations, these speeches of judgment and then of salvation. Uh, messages of judgment and salvation throughout the book. 
Remarkable thing, I think the most remarkable thing about Isaiah is the way it points us so clearly to Jesus. There are 50 or more prophecies, commentators note, that point to Jesus as the Messiah. And that's why Isaiah has been called the evangelical prophet. The word evangelical has to do with gospel, the word gospel um, from the Greek word euangelion, gospel or good news. Some people refer to the book of Isaiah, in fact, this Old Testament book, as the gospel of Isaiah. If you're looking for a book from which to share the gospel of Jesus with a Jewish friend, I think Isaiah is that book, the best book for that purpose. Tradition says Isaiah was killed by being placed in a hollow log and sawn in two. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us that. Tradition tells us that. But the book of Hebrews in the New Testament tells us that some great people of faith were certainly put to death that way. So it certainly may have been true of this great, great prophet Isaiah. Let's take a broad look at this book of Isaiah, which has 66 chapters. Isaiah emphasizes four things that I'd like to point out this morning. The first is this, the human inclination to turn away from God and to trust in lesser things. We read in the very beginning of chapter 1 these words a moment ago. Marta read these for us. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. In other words, uh, I've raised you up, I've created you, I've called you, and you have forgotten me. You've forgotten the Lord your maker. This has been an inclination of the human heart ever since the Garden of Eden when God created Adam and Eve and gave them everything there and they turned from God, eating the forbidden fruit, rebelling against God. The human inclination to turn away from God. In chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, the prophet notes, their land is filled with silver and gold. This was a prosperous time for them. There is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there's no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands to what their own fingers have made. In other words, in their prosperity, they made idols with their own hands out of their own silver and gold, and then they bowed down and began to worship the things that they had made with their own hands. Doesn't that seem illogical? To make an idol out of silver or gold and then bow down to what you've made and worshiped it rather than your creator God? I wonder if we ever do things like that with the money that we've made. The Apostle Paul notes in the New Testament this uh, tendency of the human heart. In Romans chapter 1, listen to these very, very important uh, words. In Romans 1 and verse 20, he's writing about God and he says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. In other words, creation points to our creator. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. 
but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Worshiping and serving the creature ourselves rather than our creator, the Lord. This has been an inclination of the human heart to turn away from God and to turn from lesser things. In the prophet Isaiah, really majors on this fact that God's own people whom he'd raised up had now turned away from him. A second emphasis in the book of Isaiah, and this one is so foundational and critical in order to have a good understanding of the whole big picture of God's plan and especially what we call the gospel, and that has to do with the holiness of God. I don't think there's another prophet in the pages of the Old Testament who gives us a stronger emphasis on the holiness of God. In chapter 1 and verse 4, we read, They have forsaken the Lord, Isaiah wrote. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Notice what happens when people begin to forsake the Lord. Notice the downward trend. They forsook the Lord. They despise the Lord. They're utterly estranged from the Lord. And who's the one they forsook and the one they despised? Notice the title, the Holy One of Israel. I think Isaiah uses that phrase to refer to God 25 times in the book of Isaiah. The Holy One of Israel. If you were tuned in at the very beginning of our uh, service, uh, you heard Pastor West share a, a call to worship, and it came from Isaiah chapter 6, and uh, it led us into that beautiful worship uh, song, that hymn, Holy, 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 and that really finds its origin in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, some of the most important words about the holiness of God in all the Bible. We read in Chapter 6, verses 1 to 5. In the year that King Uzziah died, this was one of the kings under whom Isaiah had served. In the year that he died, I saw the Lord. So Isaiah gets a vision of God. He writes, he, he proclaims, he prophesies, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim, these, stood the seraphim, these angelic beings, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And, he, and one called to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Imagine this. Imagine seeing this vision. Now, what does Isaiah do? When he sees this vision, does he go, wow, this is so cool. I get to see God. No. He says, woe is me. Woe is me. Now think about this for a minute. Think about who's saying this, who's giving us these words. This is Isaiah. In his time, 
He is arguably the holiest among the people. He's the one God's using. He's on God's side. He's the one who's giving the hard words. He's the one who tradition says ultimately was sawn in two because of his devotion to the Lord. We could say Isaiah was certainly, if not the holiest man among the people of Israel in his day, certainly one of them. But what does the holiest of people say when he encounters the holy, utter holiness of God, the very glory of God? He says, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Friends, this is the point, and it's critically important to understand this truth. In the light of the holiness of God, the best of people fall very far short. That's why the Apostle Paul says, there's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It is critically important to get a right understanding of the holiness of God. If we get this right in our understanding, many other areas of theology and faith will fall into place properly. Because God's holiness exposes our need for his grace. God's holiness exposes our need for his grace. It's a critically important uh, foundational truth for understanding God's one-story plan, understanding the gospel. And Isaiah makes the holiness of God as clear as anyone, I think, amongst the prophets of the Old Testament. God's holiness exposes our need for his grace. But there's another emphasis in the book of Isaiah. I mentioned before that the the book swings back and forth between these oracles, these speeches about judgment and about salvation. And Isaiah emphasizes very strongly the certainty of God's judgment upon sin. And it's happened. It's happened to Uh, God's people. In the midst of their prosperity, they had made idols. They had bowed down. They'd worshiped the works of their own hands. And so Isaiah 1 and verse 7 says, your country lies desolate and your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. Judgment has come. Judgment has come, Isaiah says. In verses 22 and 23, your silver has become dross. In other words, your wealth has now lost its value. Your best wine is mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. In other words, your leaders are corrupt. Your leaders are a reflection of who you are. You've gotten who you deserve as a nation. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. As we look at the prophets of the Old Testament, I think there are two sins that they point out perhaps more than any others. 
the first one is idolatry. And idolatry is putting something before God, something over God. The New Testament, the Apostle Paul tells us that covetousness, greed, a love for money is a form of idolatry. Uh, Idolatry is often pointed out by the prophets, but idolatry gives rise to another sin, and it's often pointed out by the prophets, and it's pointed out here in Isaiah 1 and verse 23 uh, by Isaiah when he says, they do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Injustice toward the needy, and with special emphasis here and elsewhere in the Bible, orphans and widows. The New Testament Uh, The Apostle James in James 1 and verse 27 said, True religion and undefiled is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Keep yourself from the pollutions of the world and its idolatry and care for the widow and the orphan, the vulnerable, the needy. And Isaiah is saying to the Israelites, you have failed on both fronts. Therefore, judgment, God's judgment has come upon you. But there's another emphasis in Isaiah. And it is a great emphasis. It's the emphasis because of which sometimes the book is called the Gospel of Isaiah. And he's sometimes called the Evangelical Prophet. And remember, his name, Isaiah, Isaiah means Yahweh saves. The Lord. The Lord saves. He's the one who's standing up proclaiming uh, judgment before the people, but he's also proclaiming that Yahweh saves. And Isaiah emphasizes God's provision for salvation from sin and judgment. And he does it from beginning to end in the book. When Martha read the words at the, uh, several minutes ago from chapter 1, she read these words. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they should be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they should become like wool. I mentioned that I, earlier that I think Isaiah is the best book of the Old Testament from which to share the gospel with a Jewish friend. You've got a Jewish friend who really accepts the, the Old Testament books as the authoritative and inspired scriptural word of God. Isaiah, who lived about seven centuries before Christ, is a terrific place to go to present the gospel. And... Um, great chapter to use is Isaiah chapter 53. I'd like to read several verses now from the end of chapter 52 going into chapter 53. And the emphasis in these verses is on one who's sometimes referred to as the suffering servant. A number of the chapters in the latter part of Isaiah talk about God's servant. He says, my servant, my servant, my sermon. And Commentators generally agree this is a reference to the Messiah, who we believe to be Jesus. Hear these words from the end of chapter 52 going into chapter 53 of Isaiah. 
Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. So ever, whoever God's servant is, this Messiah, at some point his appearance is going to be so marred he'll be beyond human semblance, beyond even recognition as a human because of his, his battered body. In his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which had not been told them they see, and that which they had not heard they understand. Who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men and acquainted with grief, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. I'll notice these words, and who do you think they're speaking of? But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, that is the punishment that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. In other words, he took our place. He was punished. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was punished so that we might have peace, peace with God. He was wounded for our healing. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. We've sinned. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He took our place. Over 700 years before the coming of Christ, Isaiah very specifically points out God's one-story plan. God's plan of redemption. People weren't going to fix themselves. God was going to intervene. He was going to enter our world in the form of this person who, well, grew up before him like a young plant, came as a baby boy, lived, became a man. And at the appropriate time, he would be nailed to a cross and he would fulfill the words of Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6. Someone may ask, well, how do you know that refers to Jesus? I think it's quite clear that it does because of the specific prophecies fulfilled by Christ. But I'll add that Jesus himself, I believe, understood that he was the suffering servant spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. One reason I say that is because of something that happened in Jesus' life in ministry. It's recorded for us in the Gospel of Luke chapter 4. 700 years after the time of Isaiah, when Jesus was roughly uh, 30 years old. Luke chapter 4 and verse 16 tells us that Jesus uh, came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Customary for people on the Sabbath to go to the place of worship. 
and uh, to read from scrolls. People didn't have their own Bibles, didn't even have their own scrolls at home. But Jesus stood up in the synagogue to read. Apparently, he was recognized as a good teacher. And the, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Can you imagine Jesus now standing in the synagogue, unrolling this great scroll? Someone had copied meticulously by hand of the prophet Isaiah. Jesus unrolled the scroll, and he's going to read from Isaiah chapter 61. And he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Everybody's looking at Jesus to hear how he's going to comment on this passage that he has just read. And so what does he say? Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I am the one. I am the one upon whom is the Spirit of the Lord to proclaim release to the captives. He's saying, I am the suffering servant of Isaiah. Jesus is God's provision for our salvation. Predicted over 700 years before he came by the prophets. This morning, if you have never embraced him as your Savior and the Lord of your life, I would urge you toward that decision. Now, I'd like to pray with you about that in just a moment, but first I'd like to consider more broadly this message of Isaiah in responding to judgment. How do we as a people respond to God's judgment when we think we may see evidence of God's judgment upon our own nation? What should our response be? Well, as Isaiah writes in chapter 1 and verse 18, Come now, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they should be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they should become like wool. The invitation of God to his people when they are wayward, when they have turned idols, when they have failed to care for the vulnerable, the needy, the orphan, the widow, is always come. Jesus himself said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The solution for those who experience the judgment of God is to turn. To turn from idolatry, to turn from injustice and abuse of the widow and the orphan and the vulnerable and to turn to God, to seek God, come to him. Because of what Jesus has done, the invitation still stands. Come to me, all who labor 
and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Would you join me as we pray about that right now? Father, we do come to you, and we come not on the basis of our own goodness, but on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus Christ and in his holy name. And Lord, how we thank you for the salvation that you have provided for us. I pray for any watching the service this morning, any listening to it later today, Father, that you would open the eyes of their hearts to embrace the fullness of the salvation you have provided. Do our Lord Jesus. Lord, as we pray together today, I also want to pray for our nation. And Father, we're not deserving of your mercy as a nation. We ask that you would turn our hearts back to you. And Lord, we pray first for your church, for your people. Would you do the needed work in each of us individually and in our church corporately and in your church throughout this nation to call us to wholehearted devotion to you? our Lord and our God. May we turn from idolatry and turn to you. May we turn from injustices and turn to you. May we walk faithfully with you and give glory to your great name. And we ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.